1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Yining Chang. With me today is Professor Duncan Bell, and we're here to talk about his new book, Dream Worlds of Race, Empire, and the Utopian Destiny of Anglo-America, published 2020 by Princeton University Press. Duncan Bell is Professor of Political Thought and International Relations at the University of Cambridge. He's written widely on the history of political thought, and his books include The Idea of Greater Britain, 2007, and Reordering the World, 2016. His latest book, Dream Worlds of Race, takes us to the years between the late 19th century and the First World War. At this turn of the century moment, an ocean-spanning network of prominent individuals advocated the unification of Britain and the United States. They dreamed of the final consolidation of the Anglo world. Scholars, journalists, politicians, businessmen, and science fiction writers invested the Anglo Saxons with extraordinary power. The most ambitious hailed the Anglo Saxons as a people destined to bring peace and justice to the earth. More modest visions still imagined them as likely to shape the 20th century. Dream Worlds of Race explores this remarkable moment in the intellectual history of racial domination, political utopianism, and world order. Focusing on a quartet of extraordinary figures, Andrew Carnegie, W.T. Stead, Cecil J. Rhodes, and H.G. Wells, Duncan Bell shows how unionists on both sides of the Atlantic reimagined citizenship, empire, patriotism, race, war, and peace in their quest to secure global supremacy. Yet even as they dreamed of an Anglo-dominated world, the Unionists ag- disagreed over the meaning of race, the legitimacy of imperialism, the nature of political belonging, and the ultimate form and purpose of unification. The racial dream world was an object of competing claims and fantasies. Exploring speculative fiction as well as more conventional forms of political writing, Bell reads Unionist arguments as expressions of the utopianism circulating through fin de anglo Anglo-American culture And juxtaposes them with pan-Africanist critiques of racial domination and late 20th century fictional narratives of Anglo-American empire. Duncan, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, I'm I'm well.
0: Congratulations on the publication of your book. I'd love to start by hearing about your prehistory as a scholar. So before we turn to the book and to the trilogy in which the book is embedded, I wonder if you could start us off by telling us about yourself where you went to school, whom you were taught by, what you used to read, just everything that, broadly speaking, made uh, made you eventually become interested in the things you study today.
1: Thanks. Uh, So I studied originally in London as an undergraduate in the Department of War Studies uh, at King's College London, um, which was a kind of interdisciplinary international relations degree in a way. And then I came to Cambridge for my master's degree to study international relations, uh, and then... I embarked on a PhD which ended up being in history and it's I guess the interface between those two subjects uh, that I studied originally between international relations and and history that have helped to shape my subsequent career uh, and that feed into I think all of the books that I've done um, including the most recent one. So after I graduated from my PhD program here um, I had a couple of postdocs and ended up being fortunate enough to get a position here and I basically taught in Cambridge ever since uh, with a couple of brief uh, sabbaticals in uh, the United States. But the work, as I say, has always um, really been at the kind of intersection of uh, certainly international relations and and history of political thought, British history. Uh, And I try and bring a political set of political theory interests, political theory sensibility to it too. So I see my work as as interdisciplinary, um, in a way, combining history and theory, uh, depending on the topic at hand. My PhD was on Imperial Federation, uh, the idea that um, Britain and its settler colonies could and should be united uh, to help create this massive, omnicompetent polity. And that was the subject of my first book, which grew out of the PhD. So that was the idea of Greater Britain. And it's an idea I kept playing around with over the subsequent years, uh, as well as doing several other rather different kinds of projects. And uh, in 2016, as you mentioned, I published Reordering the World, uh, which is a collection of essays essentially, although thematically united, that draw together some of that work on ideas about uh, British imperial thought um, and run a particular line about the relationship between liberalism and um, empire. So, stressing in particular the connection between liberal political thought, at least in its Anglo American forms, and settler colonialism. So, it's to suggest that. Settler colonialism has been a key theme, key kind of dream, really, of lots of, uh, particularly 19th and early 20th century, liberal thinkers in a way that had been um, downplayed or ignored in some of the other literature on the subject. And then this third book um, can be seen, although it was never originally intended to be, uh, can be seen as the third book in a trilogy where I switch the the kind of axis from Britain and its um, existing settler colonies in the late 19th century to ideas about um unifying or integrating britain and the united states during the same period so i, I see them as two sides of the same coin in a way uh, in the book i, I refer to two two axes of the anglo world one of which focused on imperial federation so britain and its settler colonies in australia canada new zealand uh, and the other of which principally focused on its ex-settler colony the united states uh, and so without ever really planning to i i've see myself now as having ended up writing a, a loose trilogy on what I call uh, the, the kind of metropolitan settler imaginary. So fantasies and visions, um, political projects emanating from the uh, political and intellectual elites that foresaw various kinds of political integration on a global scale, ultimately rooted in claims about uh, racial identity and superiority.
0: And you speak of the third book in the, well, the Loose series, um as being different from the rest because it switches that axis but it seems to me that the title of the book really jumps out as well and it's it seems to mark quite a difference from the other two so dream worlds of race empire and the utopian desire of anglo-america every other word in the title seems to signal that this book is distinctive from the rest so i mean in book one greater Britain is is an idea in book two you focus on imperial ideology but here you talk about dreams and dream worlds utopias and desires so Does that reflect a substantive difference in your approach, in your subjects, your sources?
1: It's a very good question. Um, I don't think it marks a fundamental break or transformation. There are clear continuities uh, between the books and the kind of individuals I look at and the kind of arguments I'm interested in. But there is definitely um, an expansion, I might uh, think about it, in terms of the, the kinds of sources I'm looking at. And there's also a reconceptualization of some of the key themes. So the notion of utopianism is central to this volume in a way that it wasn't to earlier ones, although it's mentioned in various places in them. But I use it here as an overarching um, analytical category or an uh, framework to make sense of some of these arguments. Um, and that's tying into this notion of the dream world. So they're not separable. Uh, the kind of notion of uh, dreaming is directly connected to the stress that I place on, on utopianism. So, yeah, I would see it as an evolution or an expansion of the kind of conceptual um, frameworks that I use to make sense of this. It's nearly 20 years since I started working on this subject, uh, which seems like a very long time indeed. And my thought on it has evolved over time as I've engaged with a variety of uh, other scholars, as I've read more widely, um, as I've grown older, as wider politics have changed. So a whole series of things have fed into this. So, yes, while I think there is a kind of core line of continuity, there's uh, a wider set of concerns, I think, at play now. And one final point there is that um, what one, two, and two, two differences, really, in this book that I haven't mentioned so far. One is that I also engage with uh, literature, speculative literature, in a way that I didn't previously. So, one of the chapters in the book, as well as a su- substantial chunk of the conclusion, uh, is dedicated to examining science fiction writing. Um, and then the other thing that I do in this book that I haven't in the others is that I also uh, look at what Robert um, Gooding Williams calls Afro modern thought as a kind of uh, outside critique of the white supremacist ideologies that I'm looking at. So I explore some of Du Bois's writings from the period as well as a, a much less well known um, Jamaican Pan Africanist called T.E.S. Scholes. And the purpose there is to. Step outside of this uh, discourse that I've spent so much time trying to elucidate and, and examine, and, and see how it was critiqued from uh, from outside, from from those that were essentially regarded in some sense as subject to this discourse. So, there's a variety of changes in, in this book. Uh, I wouldn't want to write the same book over and over again. Um, the the kind of the, you know the aims and the purposes and the, the theoretical and conceptual armoury have, have changed over time, but uh, and hopefully. It, that, that can kind of be read back into some of the earlier books, as it were. So I, I see it as a process of updating. I don't think that anything I ever write uh, I regard as kind of final and fixed. I think it's always subject to being reinterpreted, to being, to being um, changed in various ways. And so um, hopefully that's how people will regard some of the early work. I think that some of the material, at least in this book, can be used to almost reframe some of the earlier material. But I don't think it's in any way incompatible with it. I, as I say, I see it as part of an overarching project really to explore these interrelated, uh, interconnected themes and, and political projects.
0: And if it's a slightly different conceptual armory, as you call it, I thought I might um, we might drill down into that a little bit. Um, because to some ears, at least, the terms dreams and desires would call to mind different traditions related to psychoanalytic theory or surrealism but for the most part that doesn't seem to be how you use the term um you do use the, the the term cognitive transformations i think um at various parts in the book but could you tell us more about how you conceptualize dreams desires and utopianism in this book and the could you tell us about the analytic purpose that they serve
1: yes again very good question um it's right that i don't use it in a psychoanalytic sense uh funnily enough, I've, done some recent other work on psychoanalysis and political thought, uh, but this definitely isn't in this book. I was hoping I could actually find some kind of connection because, of course, the period in which I wrote this, the uh, period at least I'm studying, sorry, uh, not that I wrote it, uh, is the period in which uh, Freud published The Interpretation of Dreams. And it would have been extremely um, fortuitous for me if there had been some explicit connection drawn between some of the people I look at and, and their readings, if they ever read them, of, of Freud. But unfortunately, I couldn't find anything there. I use it, in a way, as an actor's category. Um, All four of my principal uh, agents in the book, as well as a variety of others who I discuss, referred repeatedly to their own projects in in the language of dreams. And so I picked up and ran with that. And that ties very closely into uh, a lot of the contemporary conceptual terminology used in utopian studies as a field where, for example, social dreaming is regarded as one of the key ways of characterising what utopianism is. And so this is no coincidence, and this is part of the main purpose of uh, using this framework in the book. The late 19th and early 20th century is, um, as literary historians have, have long told us, a kind of golden age of utopian thinking. It's one of the central periods in history for the production of utopian texts arguably, is more texts, uh, utopian texts written in this period than there was in any previous period or any subsequent one. Obviously, some of them are very famous, like Edward Bellamy's uh, work and William Morris's, HG Wells's, uh, but there are hundreds of texts published during these decades. And I'm arguing that the political work, the political arguments uh, that I'm particularly interested in, need to be seen in this context because they're queuing into many of the same themes. They're using much of the same vocabulary. A number of the key thinkers involved see themselves self-consciously as involved in a project of a kind of utopianism as social dreaming. And some of their critics regarded them as such as well, um, often negatively. So I'm, uh, on the one hand, imposing a kind of framework onto it, but it's one that I think emerges from uh, the actual material itself. So that's how um, I see the kind of general project. In the introduction to the book, I offer an account of utopianism because I wasn't particularly satisfied with the ways in which uh, it's been employed in at least some of the material I've been reading. So I I suggest a a kind of um, working definition in there. Uh, I call it a programmatic conception, and I differentiate that from a variety of other approaches. Um, And the purpose of doing that was to try and capture something about what I take to be the key Feature of the utopianism that I'm interested in was that it was radically transformative, that it um, involved a claim about uh, a fundamental transformation of an aspect of uh, social existence. And I can come to what that particular aspect was in a minute. But that um, seems to me to set a very high bar, a very high threshold for something to count as utopian. And I suggest that many of the people I look at pass that threshold. They really are arguing for something that is thoroughly transformative, uh, and that differentiates this usage from the way in which it's used in a variety of other contexts, particularly in a field like international relations, where utopianism has become in a way almost synonymous with pretty much any kind of change, any kind of project, however limited in its reformist ambitions. So I wanted to not make what would seem as a cheap and easy move, which would have been to suggest that, you know, this was utopian, but utopian was understood so broadly that it wasn't really adding much, but to suggest that utopianism, even understood in a very um specific uh, transformative sense was still was what they were after and the core content to that claim is that um, many of the racial utopians as I'm calling them suggested that if you unify the Anglo-Saxons as they like to call them or sometimes the English-speaking peoples if you politically integrated them you could bring peace to the earth forever so there's a fundamental perpetual peace claim. Embedded in their argument, and this is what allows me—I suggest—to call them racial utopians, and to refer to Anglotopia as their um, kind of their preferred political project. This is what their their political desire is oriented towards. Some of them also um, saw this project as part of a wider account of global justice. So, perpetual peace would be at the very core of it, but it was also an account of social inequality and various other kinds of um, social uh, change. But the bit that I'm particularly interested in, the bit that was foregrounded at the time, was this argument about perpetual peace,
0: and a big part of that um, of that fascination with um, perpetual peace and this utopianism is technology in the sense of techno scientific advancement, and that's that's really key to the context. But it's so much more than a backdrop, and in my reading, um, the fascination with techno science is one of the many things that kind of periscope, a longer history of modernity into view in this book. It draws in a much, more, much older desire to master nature, to master the future. So against that older history, what is the historically specific role that technoscience plays for your figures, to, for their consciousness, their imaginations?
1: Thanks. Yeah, so technology is absolutely central to this vision. You're right. This is a theme that I've run throughout my, my work. So in the idea of Greater Britain, Uh, One of the the key chapters in that is dedicated to uh, technological transformation and in particular to the role of communications technologies and the way that the electrical telegraph in particular, but also the ocean uh, traversing steamship, precipitate a cognitive revolution, as I call it. They um, are seen to massively uh, transform time and space in such a way that new forms of political order, ones that cross oceans or um, that our global globe spanning in some sense come to seem both uh, possible and also sometimes necessary. And that's a theme that again, recurs in this book. So it's the same uh, argument, although I um, conceptualize it somewhat differently here using work from science and technology studies uh, on techno-science and on, on cyborgs in particular. Uh, so the claim is again, that in the second half of the 19th century, particularly towards the end of that century, uh, thinkers became obsessed with the political possibilities of um, globe-spanning communication systems. And at the core is really the electrical telegraph. Although by the end of the period that I'm interested in also, there's quite a lot of fantasies about flight. So in particular in the science fiction chapter, where people are looking a bit further ahead, uh, aircraft of various kinds supplement uh, this fascination with other kinds of communications and transport technologies. But the key claim running through all of them is that time and space have been transformed, that distance has been annihilated in some sense, which means that traditional arguments about the limits, the spatial limits of political organisation and political community are no longer operative, that you can imagine a strong, thick form of political identity crossing thousands of miles so that people in the United States, people in Britain, in Australia can form part of a coherent political community in a way that in the past uh, was seen as implausible. So that's the claim. And it's a claim that people at the time themselves were making. So there was a a kind of language of radical novelty ran through uh, the debates at the time. But it was tied to ideas about necessity. So the claim was not only that this was happening and that it was vital and that it opened up these utopian possibilities, but that also something had to be done. because the world was changing in such a way. And if it wasn't done, other peoples would take advantage of it and the Anglo-Saxons would ultimately be on the losing side. So there was a real sense of anxiety tied into this um, set of arguments about utopian possibility.
0: And the third element alongside utopianism and technology that draws together the different conceptual threats in the book is race, which obviously has come up um, inevitably multiple times so far. Race is notoriously indeterminate in this period and and elsewhere. And in your chapters, you refer to the sheer messiness in the way it was thought about at this time. What are the central questions about race that you confront in this book, both historically and theoretically?
1: Yes, I mean, it's very hard indeed to pin down uh, a widely agreed upon meaning for race in the period. I mean, there simply isn't one. Uh, and the way I get around this is to offer an account of race um, as as what I call a biocultural assemblage. So this is a concept that I use to make sense of the discourse at the time. And it seems to me that rather than, uh, as is often the case, dividing um, racial theorising or accounts of race into to biological or cultural forms, it's better to see them uh, as they were employed at the time as always already a combination of these two things. And so. You know, crudely speaking, you can think of it as having a kind of race as being a claim about um, groups or about individuals in which there's a kind of hard shell, a hard physiological shell, which we might call the colour line, but a soft, mutable, flexible uh, cultural core. So... That's a set of claims about memory, about um, shared history, about shared language, about shared legal systems, a variety of different things that were employed in different configurations by different thinkers to mark out what was specific about the Anglo-Saxons or the English-speaking peoples. But the flexibility was always bounded by this hard shell, by the colour line. And so in practical terms, what this meant, for example, was that it was perfectly possible to argue that emigrants from Uh, Northern, Southern, Eastern Europe could come to the United States and through work on the self and through the adoption of various linguistic practices, maybe religious practices, could become Anglo-Saxon, could become English speakers. Um, I use as an example in this book, uh, John Dos Passos, the the father of the more famous novelist who is a prominent um, lawyer and uh, Republican um, in Late 19th century United States, who was a first generation Portuguese immigrant, but who self described as an Anglo Saxon and wrote a book about Anglo Saxon superiority in the 20th century. So, for people uh, like him, it was perfectly possible to imagine becoming an Anglo Saxon when you didn't start out as one. But what this didn't allow at all was the possibility of African Americans becoming um, Anglo Saxons or Chinese or other East Asian uh, immigrants or in the British case, South Asian immigrants. So the Du Boisian colour line bounded this conception of race, but the conception internal to that was itself quite fluid, and it allowed for many of these different um, patternings and configurations that you find in the arguments. So this, in other words, is a form of white supremacism that I'm interested in, and I'm quite explicit about that. But the particular content of that does shift quite a lot between individuals, and so does the terminology. So while Anglo-Saxon was very widely employed so too was English-speaking peoples or English-speaking people. Uh, And that was sometimes preferred. So all all four of my main characters at various points uh, uh, emphasised English-speaking people above Anglo-Saxon. And that's not because their conception was less um, racist or or was less an account of white supremacism. It was for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they just found the historical claims attached to Anglo-Saxonism or the... um, the linguistic claims to be thoroughly uh, uns- unsupportable. But it could be slightly more interesting than that. So, Theodore Roosevelt, for example, preferred to speak of English speaking peoples because he wanted people like himself, Dutch, uh, coming from a Dutch stock, to be able to become part of this racial polity. So, there was a sense there that, you know, again, we want to keep open the ability to transform um, peoples, particularly immigrants, from Europe into the United States in particular, and that the language of Anglo-Saxonism could actually get in the way of that. So it was an attempt, everyone knows you know, Roosevelt was, was a thoroughly racist individual and um, committed to a strong kind of white supremacist project. So it wasn't that they preferred English speaking to Anglo-Saxon because they were worried about the racial connotations of Anglo-Saxon. It was often for a different set of political reasons or for some uh, more scholarly reasons to do with being unpersuaded by the historical narratives attached to Anglo-Saxon claims. So, yeah, it's very tricky to get a handle on it, but I've attempted to do so by um, talking about race in this, this way as biocultural assemblage. So I have quite a long discussion of that in the introduction to the book. And I think it makes sense of the various moves and the differences between uh, the people I look at, some of whom stress langu- shared language, some of whom stress the common law, some of whom stress a particular Teutonist account of history. Um, but all of whom by this view of it being essentially a white, um, a claim about whiteness.
0: Now I want to, um, drill down into the, the claims of whiteness and the different ways of talking about race and just a little bit, but, um, you mentioned Europe and you mentioned, um, stock, and I just kind of want to turn to that for a bit, um, I imagine this is this question about Europe would have been would have come up more in your in your book talks maybe a couple years ago um but it's still super relevant um in the book and elsewhere um you've mentioned race and language in the way Europe was um written in or written out of this story um and I'm interested for instance how Wt Stead in the second chapter comes into the spotlight with his advocacy of European federation, mm. but it it is largely absent elsewhere um, as you as you've pointed out. So, race and language are obviously important parts of that writing in or that writing out. But I wonder if is geographical imaginaries part of the story of how they think or don't think about Europe um, as well especially if technoscience advancements transform their perspectives on space and time and allow them to imagine space and time differently, um, what does that do to the way they think about Europe?
1: So one thing it allows them to do is to um, basically transport themselves away from, from Europe, if that makes sense, so that Britain's geop- geopolitical or sort of geographical proximity to Europe becomes far less significant. As far as the people I'm interested in are concerned, the kind of true home or the true kin, as they would have often called it, the true allies, um, the true co community, you know, uh, uh, members of the same community are now in the South Pacific or across the North Atlantic. They're not over the English Channel. And so the transformation of geography that's um, precipitated by the communications revolution allows Britain to not worry so much about being close to Europe and 3,000 miles away from North America. Uh, So that, that, as it were, is part of the background to this claim. Uh, There's a good quote from that in the first uh, book that I did, uh, Idea of Greater Britain, from J.R. Seeley, the historian, who talks about um, Canada being as close now uh, as Kent is, a county in southern England. The idea here is that distance is essentially being dissolved that it no longer has political salience because communication is instantaneous uh, through the telegraph and because uh, the speed of movement across the Atlantic because of um, you know, much faster ships uh, really reduces the, the, the significance. So that's one way in which the, the change rewrites geography in a way that Britain becomes, that Britain's Europeanness becomes less significant. Now Europe plays another role in this uh, set of arguments, usually as the other to the Anglo world. So Europe is taken to be many of the things that the Anglo world isn't. It's different religiously, it's different politically, it has a different history, including a history of antagonism against Britain and so on. So it plays the kind of standard role of the other towards the Anglo. But again, it's more complicated than that because Europe's also the source of many of the people who are going to form... Already do form and in the future will continue to form the Anglo world because of large-scale migration patterns. Moreover, uh, particularly uh, Germany plays a significant role in, in this in relation to racial theorizing. So one of the core kind of strands of um, racial theorizing in the book concerns ideas about the Aryans and also Teuton, uh, Teutonist theories of race, which have been uh, widely discussed by other intellectual historians. But the kind of basic claim here is that there's a westward movement of um, uh, of a people who are particularly well adapted to freedom. So there's a kind of story about particularly the, the kind of the Germans inventing, in a way, freedom within kind of medieval forest settings, and then there's a westward movement through Britain and then outwards towards the United States. So there's a there's a geographical directionality involved in this story too. Now that Doesn't mean they therefore think that contemporary Germany is on the same footing or should be part of the Anglo world, although many of them are at least initially sympathetic to Germany and see it as some kind of ally. For various historical reasons, Germany's diverted from its original Teutonist path. The true true Teutons are no longer in Germany, they're in Britain and/or the United States. And so there's a series of kind of cross-cutting and sometimes uh, tension-ridden claims about Europe going on. Uh, But None of the people I'm interested in thought that, for example, Britain should be part of a European federation. Um, Stead was in favour of a Europe, united Europe, but that didn't include Britain. Uh, so, yeah, they they really did regard this as as a, a separate set of political projects. Wells too uh, predicted European Union uh, in, in his uh, prophetic political writings. But again, that wasn't to include Britain. Uh, Britain would be united with the other English speaking peoples. So you can see how this you know resonates to some extent in contemporary politics and, and did through the 20th century. Uh, but the, these arguments have deep roots. So yeah, Europe plays a variety of different roles in these claims.
0: And when Britain is kind of written out of, of, of a potential European federation, it's written into that Anglo-America um, fantasy. There are different ways in which this is expressed um, by the characters in your book. You use the terms racial kinship, Um, where someone like Carnegie talks about Britain being the mother whose only future lies in her children. Um, There's also racial reunion, um, which alludes to a past separation of different branches of the same race. And then there's racial destiny with much more providentialist and theological overtones. So racial kinship and reunion and destiny can appear and reappear in this story. How do these different modalities come together and what do they help you access about Anglotopia?
1: So, I mean, those terms are all um, terms that were uh, used at the time. I mean, I don't use them myself as, um, well, with the partial exception of destiny, which I'll come to, but certainly the notion of kinship, the notion of racial reunion, uh, that those were the terms in which people like Carnegie and and Stead uh, made made their arguments. I think of it um, principally in terms of degrees of institutionalisation on the one hand, and uh, on the other hand, about what? you know the destiny or the future of this thing will be so on the institutions point there's a spectrum just as there was with imperial federation from those that uh, argued that there were no new institutions really needed uh, to foment integration because what was really required was simply a shift in consciousness a recognition of there being a shared racial identity between particularly britain and the united states and a collective project that they uh, should embark upon And uh, if anything, institutions would get in the way of this. There was no need for more political institutions. There was no need to institutionalise this legally through um, creating treaties of any kind. So that's one end of the spectrum. Um, At the other end of the spectrum is a kind of full integrationist agenda, which imagined the development of something like a single state incorporating uh, or subsuming the United States and Britain, a federal state uh, typically. So that's where Carnegie ends up. It's where, in fact, it's where Wells and and also um, Stead end up too, uh, albeit in slightly different uh, ways in each case. So that's the most kind of radical institutionalised version. And then in between, there's a variety of other kinds of projects, the creation of various forms of uh, joint citizenship, for example, which I dedicate a chapter to, or as a lot of the geopolitical thinkers involved in this debate like to to think uh, or like to stress, kinds of defensive or offensive treaties, um, sometimes to do with international arbitration, other times to try to combine the military forces of the two uh, countries or or empire states in various ways. And so there's a whole series of different ways of thinking about the institutional character of uh, the Anglo world. But one point I want to stress is that um, the amount of ambition, as it were, of each of these projects wasn't directly correlated with the degree of institutionalization So while it's the case that all of the kind of full integrationist projects were, um, in my own terms in the book, utopian, they were all pushing for forms of kind of rethinking, transforming global order, bringing perpetual peace, so too were some of the um, non-institutional ones. It's not the case that those that were skeptical about institutions also had much more modest ambitions for uh, the Anglo world. Some of them certainly did. Uh, but others didn't. They they thought that those utopian ambitions could could be achieved and maybe could only be achieved through a non institutionalized version of the Anglo world. And the claim there is that the racial identity is so fundamental and so so basic to what makes this thing special that institutions were even not necessary or might actually help to complicate things too much. Uh, and so those are the two kind of dimensions that I um, use analytically to try to make sense of this: is the institutionalization and does. As it were, the degree to which these aspire to a utopian project of transformation or not.
0: So the most um, you, you talked about literary um, literary traditions and the genres of um, fiction and speculative fiction as playing a big part in this project. Um, probably the most exciting point for for most. Readers coming to this would be H.G. Wells, um, but he's not the only novelist you spend time on. Chapter five is devoted to science fiction, and the final chapter returns again to Afro modern writing and that specific literary tradition. How, what informs the way you approach novel and fiction, the novel and fiction as genres and media for pursuing political projects of world making, and more broadly, how should political theorists and historians of political thought? think or rethink our relationship to these sources?
1: That's a very tricky question, um, and I'm not sure I've got any particularly interesting answers to the kind of general uh, methodological query. Uh, Of course, plenty of historians of political thought already study uh, usually great works of literature uh, in this context. I mean, think, for example, the work done on Milton or Shakespeare in in early modern thought. I take a different approach in this book. I don't really look at um, great works of literature. So, I have a chapter on science fiction writing, and I would say that pretty much all of the novels I look at in there um, would fail any test of ultimate literary quality. I'm interested in them not because they're great works of art, but because they're vehicles um, for the expression of quite clear cut political projects. So, there's a convergence of genres here. In the late 19th century, you get the emergence uh, on both sides of the Atlantic of what comes to be called Invasion literature, for for want of a a better word. And that's bound up itself with the emergence of modern science fiction writing on the back of Jules Verne and and H.G. Wells and so on. Uh, And they intersect in various ways. So probably the best known, albeit very idiosyncratic, invasion text is Wells's um, War of the Worlds. But the standard text in that genre is a very lightly fictionalised geopolitical statement. Uh, many of those books were written by journalists, uh, military officers, political commentators of one kind or another, sometimes politicians, to um, articulate, to work through, to extrapolate, to imagine and play around with their political projects. So it's that kind of text that I principally look at. Now, some of them are extremely ambitious in some senses. So one of the texts I look at is often now regarded as one of the very first space operas ever written, uh, Robert Cole's um, book on essentially the future settler colonization of the um of the solar system incredibly ambitious in a way um but it's in another way it fits quite clearly into um what i was just talking about cole was a political commentator who wrote widely about questions of empire the book is clearly being used as um a a means for making his political arguments in a more imaginative form so this makes it easier i'm no literary critic and I, i don't um don't pretend to be I read these texts uh hopefully imaginatively and creatively, but I read them as direct interventions in the very political debates which the rest of the book is looking at uh, and sometimes they're very clearly so sometimes slightly less clearly so but it's it's not such a big leap um so I don't think uh and you know, some literary critics may may call me out on this, but I don't think there's any great um need for uh, a different methodology to be employed here. It would be different if we were looking at um, it, fiction that wasn't so obviously political, uh, and that takes you into a very different realm. But as I say, I re- regard these in a way as many of them as political treatises dressed up uh, in fictional form. So that's what's going on in, in that chapter. I mean, so you know, another of the books that I spend a considerable amount of time looking at uh, was written by Julius Vogel, uh, who was premier of New Zealand, one of the key. Political figures arguably the key political figure of late 19th century New Zealand. Uh, and he wrote a utopian novel. And that utopian novel is clearly continuous with his non-fictional writings about empire, about women's suffrage and a variety of other themes. And then he uses this book, as many people at the time were, to explore these political ideas and to imagine a future society in which they were realised, presumably in order to help um, persuade people of their validity and their interest and their desirability. So that's the way in which I look at these um, science fictional texts from the period. Wells plays a, a somewhat different role. Um, I don't actually look at Wells's fiction. And the reason for that is that in none of Wells's fiction from this period do you actually find any exploration of the idea of the Anglo world. There are some imperial themes uh, in, in his fiction at the time. They've been widely discussed, and I've discussed them elsewhere myself. Uh, but he doesn't explore what he's writing about in his um more conventional political treatises, political writings of the period. So my, my long chapter on Wells focuses very much on, um, for want of a better word, we could just call his non-fictional writings, sociological writings, his political writings from the period. In the conclusion, I switched uh, again somewhat. So what I look at there is a little bit of... Um, fictional writing from the Afro-modern tradition, but the the principal discussion of fiction in the conclusion is actually about steampunk literature um, from the late 20th century and early 21st century. And there, um, the texts are somewhat more interesting as actual fictional texts than the late 19th century ones. They're not straightforward um, political manifestos. Uh, And so I have to use them in a slightly different way again. But the purpose behind that is... is, um, is one that I hope works. Uh, the, the idea was that if you look at the texts from the late 19th century that are the subject of most of the book, these these texts talk about this political vision, this dream of unifying the Anglo world. And they tend to suggest that this is feasible within 100 years. Uh, and what happens if you look 100 years ahead? Well, it didn't come to pass in quite that way, uh, although there are certainly lots of developments that they would have welcomed. But what you do find is a series of literary um, interventions which actually look back a 100 years to the very period uh, where the original texts were written, sometimes using the same figures, Wells, Cecil Rhodes and others, but reimagining the 19th and 20th century, reimagining particularly the geopolitics of it. So I explore in that section a series of ways in which the Anglo-American relationship was uh, counterfactually reimagined in speculative literature, usually by eliminating or downplaying the role of the United States. So these are texts that tend to be ones in which the British Empire continues to predominate in various ways. And I explore this in relation to the underlying conceptions of temporality uh, and history that underpin a lot of the narratives, both fictional and, um, and uh, of other kinds, too, throughout the book. So that, that's essentially what's going on. And I hope it works out. I do think there's a lot more to be said in general about um, speculative fiction and speculative work of various other kinds as a form of political thought. Um, but at least in this book, that's what I'm t- I'm trying to do.
0: And if I may move from, from that, from speculative fiction, to a far more familiar subject for political thought and theory, Chapter 6 is A Fascinating Treatment of Sovereignty. There you consider how these figures rethought political belonging. And one of the things you hone in on is the way patriotism was refashioned and given racial meaning. By, by these characters. And one of the striking points for me um, was your discussion of how people like A.V. Dicey and many others, raised was made a privileged site of political belonging in addition to or even above state or empire. I'm reminded of the way um, Dr. Mira Siegelberg's recent book, Statelessness, draws our attention to the way such juridical political categories don't just make and remake political and legal orders, they're also fundamental to how we form our political subjectivities. Is that something that also emerges from your study um, on on sovereignty?
1: Um, I mean, I think the general sensibility, yes, absolutely. Uh, Mira's book's great. Um, What I was trying to do in that chapter is, is pick out something that I found be central in these late 19th century arguments and I think it's conceptually interesting too, not something that tends to be explored um, by historians of political thought. I mean not least because a lot of the texts that I'm looking at are not systematic treaties, they're not particularly sophisticated. Dicey is an exception there which is why I focus in on him at quite a lot of length in that chapter because he was the most prominent constitutional thinker really in the uh, British Empire at the time uh, and he was also one of the people that pushed this argument the hardest. But the notion here is, and it's the same about citizenship uh, and uh, patriotism, that there's this kind of notion of um, a, a kind of concentric circles of, of, of belonging and political obligation that encompass uh, the state, but also a wider sense of race. And in some cases also go more local. So I look at A.J. A. Balfour's work, for example, the British prime minister who was also a philosopher and who's the one that, um, although he didn't necessarily coin the term race patriotism, uh, came to be very closely associated with it. He makes an argument about, as it were, both um, moving in more local terms, your Scottish national, your Scottish patriotism, your um, your regional town patriotism, and your patriotism to the state, and your patriotism to the race, and at the very widest and thinnest, uh, at least in his work, your your patriotism to humanity. But for him, the two key categories are, are state and race, and they were the ones that uh, play through that, that chapter and a lot of these arguments. I think of it in terms of the kind of unbundling of territoriality, sovereignty in the state and their kind of re-articulation in various uh, more expansive ways. So the idea here isn't that race, patriotism and racial citizenship fully replace or supplant um, existing forms. It's that they augment them, complement them in some ways. And therefore you have this, um, you have this kind of bundle of concepts which can go together and be reworked because of the changes in technology, because of understandings of race, which become, uh, as I kind of call it in the book, the fundamental ontological unit of politics. It's not the state, um, it's not necessarily the individual, it's the race. And so race then becomes the the arena in which claims about political obligation and belonging are made. You should be a patriot for your race. And that will extend beyond the boundaries of the state. So how then might you do something with this politically or legally? And one answer that's given, and it's one Dicey makes, uh, and Dicey is in that kind of institutional spectrum I was talking about, more on the minimalist end of things. He's very sceptical of full integrationist projects. But he thinks that you can create a kind of citizenship, common citizenship or isopolity, uh, as as he calls it, that allows an individual Anglo-Saxon to be simultaneously a citizen of all Anglo-Saxon states. So you would essentially eliminate naturalization uh, processes and have a kind of space within which people can move freely and can take on various things, can stand for office, can serve in various, you know, can serve in the military, whatever it might be. Uh, And so you have this common sense of citizenship, but statehood in some other sense remains. Whereas someone like Stead or or Carnegie, they envisage a state, a single federal state, Anglo uh, in, in form, And then that would also then subsume a kind of citizenship based on uh, racial similarity. So you you get this playing around with the relationship between the state, uh, sovereignty, citizenship, patriotism, running through these debates. Uh, They're not settled categories. They have no agreed upon um, geographical or or juridical uh, limit. And the the thinkers that I'm interested in are really pushing against that to try and very explicitly so and self-consciously show to try and uh, reimagine them for this new world that they see uh, emerging.
0: The final chapter departs, I think, remarkably and beautifully from the rest. And the second half of the chapter allows the book to end with W.E.B. Du Bois and T.E.S. Scholes, two Afro-modern figures um, we've talked about a little, writing in different registers and to different ends compared to the the principal protagonists of the book, if you can call them protagonists. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us more about this coda? I'm curious, especially because it might be easy to somewhat superficially pare it off of everything that comes before. So, could you tell us what work does this final chapter do for the project as a whole?
1: So, there's there's two parts to it. Really, I mean, one thing I didn't want the uh, conclusion to do would be to essentially just go over ground that I've gone over elsewhere. So. I guess a conventional conclusion to a book like this would be one that essentially summarises the argument and then maybe traces in um, less detail than the rest of the book what happens afterwards, essentially, to some of these ideas, how how the ideas about um, perpetual peace, Anglotopia and all the rest, coursed through the 20th century. Um, but I didn't really want to do that, at least not in any detail, um, partly because I was very bored at the subject by then, uh, but partly too because I already cover some of that ground in previous writings and I didn't want to just repeat myself. I wanted to do something a bit different, um, potentially a bit more interesting. Um, so initially the thought was to finish solely on uh, the speculative fiction, so the the, the setting up the trans-temporal uh, dialogue in a way between the speculative thinkers looking a century ahead from the late 19th century and the speculative thinkers looking back a 100 years from the, from the late 19th, uh, 20th century and often honing in on the same themes, but obviously looking at them very differently and to try and draw something from that. So that's in there, um, but as you, you know, it only forms half of the chapter. I was originally planning to do a, a different chapter in the book on history and conceptions of history, and much of that material on the Afro-Modern response would have been in that chapter. Uh, But the book was already getting very long, uh, and I wanted to finish it. Uh, And I thought it would actually go very well to end the book, not least because I wanted to finish with the voices of thinkers who were standing outside of the white supremacist discourse that I'd spent one hundred and fifty thousand words or whatever it was up to that point uh, unpacking. So it gives me a way of stepping back, and also hopefully, I mean, saying something of interest about these. Uh, thinkers who are who are looking, I mean, who are looking to critique this discourse, obviously, uh, but are doing so in such a way that again allows to draw some general points out about uh, the underlying conceptions of temporality, for example, directionality and history. So that's the kind of thought. It's partly, in other words, a kind of almost a political um, choice to to end a book on white supremacism by looking at an Afro modern critique of it. Um, but it's also a kind of theoretical one that allows me to draw together the work on steampunk and its underlying temporalities with the work on temporality in the work, you know, Debois and Scholes and some of the other things I look at in that section, and, and suggest that there are similar things going on, uh, although they're put to very different purposes. And what they draw attention to is the vital role of uh, conceptions of historical time underpinning these legitimating narratives about um, racial superiority or whatever uh, it is imperial dominance so so that's what's going on i hope it works I mean, i'm glad glad that um, you you liked it um i was it's probably my the, bit of the book that i'm actually uh, happiest with uh, but it probably won't be to everyone's everyone's taste uh, not least because I, the afro modern things i'm looking at they don't explicitly engage with the notion of reunifying Britain and America. Du Bois never wrote about that, as far as I'm aware. Whereas, obviously, what uh, many of them are engaged with is a general critique of white supremacy and many of the arguments that are being employed. uh, was is the exception to that. So Scholes, who was at the time prominent um, Jamaican pan-Africanist working in in Britain principally, did actually write about that Anglo-American relation. And so that's why I pay quite a lot of attention to him uh, because he has a very different take on it, unsurprisingly, from uh, pretty much everyone else I've been looking at in the book, and he explicitly engages with and is fiercely critical of many of the thinkers that I discussed earlier, historians like uh, E.A. Freeman, politician historian academics like James Bryce, steadies in his work, so is Cecil Rhodes, a whole variety of the thinkers, some of the American theologians I look at, uh, people who I dedicated some work to earlier in the book, trying to make sense of their claims about. Uh, Anglo utopianism. He then, at the time, was offering a fierce critique of it for the damage that it was doing, uh, and for their racism. And so, it struck me as being a kind of good place to end the book on. Kind of ties it together in various ways, uh, and provides a way of looking at some of that other material that obviously wouldn't have if I'd have just kind of kept on with the, the bulk of the material in the book and finished there.
0: I did like the way it ended. I did like the final chapter. I mean, I enjoyed the book, but the that last bit I thought was, um, it, it stood out for obvious reasons. And I thought, um, well, it was personally my favorite part of the book.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the book then closes with the sentiment that reclaiming the past is the path towards achieving a better future. And I want to bring us towards a close as well with this question of temporality and futurity. In the past decade or so, a body of work obviously has coalesced around the question of how we in the present are to conceptualize or imagine our relation to the future, um, especially in relation to after the received collapse of the last great utopian project in 1991, so so it said. Coming out of this massive project on utopia and dream worlds and futurity, how do you navigate this question of um, utopia and our present? Are we in a Time without utopia? Are, are we in a time unmoored from futures yet to be?
1: A small question to finish with. <laughs> um, that's a very good and a very tough question to deal with. I mean, so I, t- I teach an undergraduate course on on exactly this uh, topic, for example, called the Politics of the Future, and it follows a chrono- broadly chronological pattern from the late nineteenth century to the present. Uh, and the way I finish it off really is by suggesting um, that we're going through. A remarkable renaissance at the moment of utopian thinking uh there's an awful lot of extremely interesting extremely uh ambitious utopian thinking being produced at the moment um uh, at least in the kind of anglo-american uh, left um and the irony of course of this is it's uh, maybe it's not exactly an irony there's no there's no coincidence that it's happening at a time when a kind of catastrophist vision of the future is ever more present to us so obviously with the threat above all of um, the kind of climate change uh, disaster that's impending. And that poses the question, of course, how do we think utopia in a world with what seems to be some very grim prospects down the line? And I have no good answer to that myself. I'm fascinated to read a lot of the responses to that. Some of my own students are working on this kind of thing. Uh, But it absolutely seems to me that we're living in a a period of enhanced utopian thought at the moment that's run together with some deeply pessimistic, deeply um, worrying um, very dystopian visions of the future and what's interesting is that these aren't necessarily antithetical they're sometimes uh, running t- in parallel with each other altogether that there's a kind of felt need for utopian thinking in this incredibly dark moment uh, or at least you know, potentially incredibly dark moment so yeah it's it's a fascinating time to be studying this subject uh, as I say I mean I, I approach it principally as an historian rather than as a, someone contributing my own utopian visions to it uh, it's above my pay grade really Uh, But it's extremely interesting for me, especially of my historical interests in the development of utopian thought, techno-futurisms and all the rest, to be reading on a very regular basis now material that's coming out all the time in that kind of vein. And again, a lot of it is also coming out in speculative fictional writings. Currently, I'm finishing up yet another Kim Stanley Robinson uh, novel. And, you know, it's it's front and centre, a kind of classic bit of utopian speculative thinking. it's part of a long tradition of such, such work, and I think political theorists would, would do well uh, to attend uh, to this kind of material. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's my, my answer. I don't uh, myself have any interesting thoughts about what a future utopia should look like, but I am fascinated by the, you know, the resurgence of interest in utopianism at the moment, and there's a lot of great scholarship being produced too on the history of utopianism and its theory too, so it's a good time to be working on this kind of material.
0: That's a that strikes me as a as good a place as any to come to come to an end. And thank you for drawing us away from that discussion of the grim prospects for the future um, as a place to end. We've taken up, I've taken up so much of your time, and I just want to ask you one last question: What are you working on now?
1: Thanks. Uh, well, right now I'm not really working on anything uh, because of uh, lockdown, so I'm having a bit of a, a break from from that at the moment. Um, but my next two Project uh, actually emerge from uh, some of the interests that we've been talking about in, in this uh, in this session and some of the things I've just briefly mentioned now. So I'm going to write a monograph on H.G. Wells as a social and political thinker. Uh, in the Dreamworld book, I only touch on uh, a brief period of his uh, writing and one theme that really uh, was prominent at that time in it. But uh, the monograph will range much more widely, really, from the late 18 uh, 1890s through to the mid-20th century and look at a wide variety of themes, uh, not with the kind of background thought that he is a great thinker who needs to be um, rediscovered for the canon, but rather that he was one of the most prominent, arguably the most globally prominent uh, intellectuals in this this period, uh, and that studying what he had to say about a wide variety of topics from the nature of war through gender, through human rights and a variety of other themes too, uh, is a well, uh, is a worthwhile kind of act of historical recovery on the one hand, but also a window into a series of um, wider social and political concerns in the first part of the 20th century. So that's one project. That'll take a few years, um, but I've made a start on it at least. And the other is, a, I guess, a more wide-ranging, um, probably less detailed uh, book on um, speculative fiction and social and political thought across the 20th century. So exploring some of the intersections between um, utopian writing, science fiction and, and politics, really from the late uh, late 19th century and into the present. So very much touching on some of those themes that, that we just just mentioned. But neither of those things are imminent, sadly. Uh, I imagine that uh, I'll be doing this for quite a few years to come. So anyway, thanks very much for for the conversation uh, and for the invitation onto the podcast.
0: Well, the pleasure has been all mine. It's It's been great to talk. Thank you so much for being here today. You've been listening to a conversation with Professor Duncan Bell about his book, Dream Worlds of Race, Empire, and the Utopian Destiny of Anglo America, Princeton University Press, 2020. And you can find out more about the book by clicking on the bookshop link in the podcast description. I'm your host, Yining Chang, and I'll see you back on the next episode.